From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. This year, December 25th, is not only Christmas, but a date marking a special place in the Atlanta arts and culture scene. The famed Fox Theater in Atlanta celebrates its 90th birthday. The fabulous Fox, as it's known, has fought its way back from near extinction a handful of times and recently earned recognition as the highest grossing venue of its size for the decade worldwide, cementing its place as a cultural center for the state of Georgia and the entire Southeast. To share some of the dramatic history of this iconic building, we're sitting down with Alan Vela. He's CEO and president of the Fox Theater. Alan, welcome. Oh, thank you. And congratulations. Oh, we we are very proud of that honor. You don't look 90, let me say. (laughs) I've had a lot of work done. The Fox first opened on December 25th, 1929. Who, who funded the building? Uh, the building was funded originally by the Shriners. Uh, the Shriners intended in building uh, this grand facility. Um, and frankly, during the, uh, the construction process, they started running over budget. And they appealed to William Fox of Fox Films, who was building other grand uh, theaters throughout the country to be uh, the primary tenant. So he infused some money so they can finish the project. Uh-huh. And there is that beautiful, like, I don't know, Islamic architecture, the domes and the minarets and that kind of thing, uh, that exotica that was common in movie palaces. It, at the it time. was. And, and, you know, in the 20s, uh, America was all the rage over the discovery of King Tut. Um, so I think that influenced a lot of the design of the theater. So December 1929, that's a tough time for a movie theater to open. I think people forget, uh, you know, so in October of uh, 1929, we had the stock market crash, Black Friday, et cetera. Um, So the Fox fell immediately on hard times. Uh, William Fox lost much of his net worth. Uh, Many of the Shriners did as well. Um, and shortly after opening, just several months, the theater closed. Uh, it could not pay its taxes and uh, was auctioned off on the courthouse steps for $75,000. Oh, my goodness. Who bought it? Uh, it was bought by several Shriners that created a company called Moss King mm-hmm. um, so they could save the theater. So then closed, then reopened, and had kind of, let's say, a heyday in the 1940s? Is it that did. Right? Um, you know, it, it, it looked not only to movies, but also some live entertainment. You know, we hosted Bob Hope and Elvis Presley and many others. Um, and the city was thriving, uh, more or less, after it survived the Great Depression. And most people lived in the, uh, the core of the community. But then uh, when the 50s came along, people started moving out into the suburbs. So mm-hmm. 50s, 60s, and 70s, people were migrating to the suburbs. Uh, Midtown Atlanta, where the Fox is uh, uh, hosted, uh, started struggling, and and the theater struggled as well. In 1974, was ready to close its doors, and in came a Save the Fox campaign. How did this campaign get started? Well, it's kind of interesting. Um, there was some volunteers that were, uh, you know, affiliated with the theater, um, and folks at Georgia Tech and elsewhere that were preservationists. Um, they had gotten word from the city building department that a demolition permit was issued mm-hmm. for the Fox. Um, so they got together a group of preservationists, um, uh, Betty Jo Cook and uh, Joe Patton and uh, uh, Pat Harnell and many others. And they created Atlanta Landmarks and they started the Save the Fox campaign. So an important player in Saving the Fox at that time was then Atlanta Mayor Maynard Jackson. Let's hear a clip of him from 2003 reflecting on that decision to stall the demolition. I was absolutely horrified. I, uh, it, was, it was incredible, unbelievable that anybody would even consider doing that. It was also um, uh, sheer folly to think that we would ever issue the demolition permit. 
until May 1, 1975, anyone who wishes to come forward to purchase the interest of Southern Bell in the Fox Theater may do so. So the difference in audio there is the 2003, but the earlier one is from 1974. That's correct. So Maynard Jackson, from GBB's documentary, The Legend Lives On, Atlanta's Fox Theater, by the way. Why do you think citizens were rallying to save it? I mean, that's not very common in a city bent on modernizing, often tearing down landmark buildings. No, I I think that the city and the citizens realized that so many great historic properties had been torn down, especially theaters like the Lowe's, uh, the Rialto, um, uh, the Grand, and many others. And I think they finally put a stake in the ground and said, stop, we need to to preserve some of these facilities and um, save this venue and save it for future generations. So saving it was one thing. Then they had to restore it. What kind of work goes into such a huge undertaking? Well, quite a bit. Um, you know, they, they saved the Fox in 1974 through a Save the Fox campaign um, that was predominantly funded through nickels and dimes, as I say, of everything from bake sales to children collecting pennies. Um, there was only one large check of about $400,000. Uh, ben Massell um, made that donation to Atlanta Landmarks, thanks to Beecham Carr, who did most of the fundraising. Then they had to fix the Fox campaign uh, just to get it up and running. They were they were convinced by a study that was commissioned by the state that um, the Fox could operate and survive, providing they can retire the debt. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the big challenge. So a Fix the Fox campaign and a campaign to help retire some of that debt took place uh, early on in the 70s just to make sure it was safe and viable. How much money did they raise? Several million dollars. Wow. So nowadays, there are clearly new digital technologies in use at the Fox. Is there anything remaining from those past 90 years? Oh, sure. Uh, you know, we, we try to keep as much of the old uh, uh, equipment and uh, operating as, as humanly possible. Actually, we have uh, a series of clouds that uh, go across the sky, the Arabian sky, and, and that is all circa 1929 technology. No kidding. Yes. Oh, that's interesting. Another artifact from the past, the hospital room. What right. is that exactly? Well, that's where we do the bloodletting. Uh, no, that is uh, where we would take pe- patrons that were feeling ill and they would be treated by a doctor or a nurse. Uh, we've kind of kept everything and preserved it in place. Uh, we don't use it any longer and uh, we don't do any more bloodletting and we got rid of the leeches and those kinds of things. So. so, but for a theater to operate now, they're big equipment, big technology. How does that work inside of an old theater infrastructure? It's a little challenging. Um, I think our biggest challenge is the depth of our stage. Um, it's, it's only about 32 feet deep. Uh, modern theaters, the minimum depth is about 45 feet. Mm. So we've adapted. So we've adapted everything from, you know, LED lighting to, uh, you know, high-speed internet to um, uh, electrical lighting, sound. Uh, our sound system is state-of-the-art. Our lights are state-of-the-art. Um, and we try to make ourselves kind of a, a viable vessel, if you will. So as that technology changes, uh, because uh, we can adapt to it. And frankly, we're a roadhouse. So, uh, you know, equipment comes and goes every day. Um, and uh, we're we're pretty adaptable and we're pretty relevant as it relates to that. Alan Vela is my guest. He's CEO and president of the Fox Theater in Atlanta, which turned 90 on December 25th, opened back in 1929. Now it is on the National Registry of Historic Places. Well, in the heart of the theater is Mighty Mo. This is the theater organ. Let's hear some of this massive organ from a recording of organist Hector Oliveira playing Old Man River and the Mighty Mo at the Fox.
That sounds like a cathedral organ, huge sound. How common is it to have one of those, and it's such a large one? Not that common. Uh, the, the Mighty Mo is probably one of the largest molar organs. Uh, it was custom-made for the theater. It's also a theatrical organ, so it's not quite like the organ that you'd have at your local church or cathedral. Uh, you know, we have um, uh, all kinds of sound effects instruments from uh, marimbas to snare drums uh, to a uh, uh, – Oh, a train whistle, um, and we have uh, sheets of uh, steel that would resemble thunder and lightning. So um, it, it's got all kinds of great little pieces to it, and it's very intricate. So it would be used for sound effects as well. Exactly. So really, the talkies were kind of just uh, you know coming out about the time that we opened the theater in 1929. So that organ was really intended to play along with movies without a soundtrack. Ugh. Well, each theater comes with a couple of ghost stories. The Fox actually had a phantom. Joe Patton was dubbed the Phantom of the Fox Theater. You mentioned his name earlier. Tell us a little bit about Joe and his relationship to the Yeah, well, Joe um, got involved really early uh, with Mosk Inc. Um, he loved the Mighty Mo, and uh, he offered to restore the organ if the theater owners would provide all the parts and the equipment, and he would provide all the labor and, and know-how. And so he and some other volunteers worked on that. Joe is one of the first individuals had also heard about the rumor of tearing the theater down, and he was one of the founding members of Atlanta Landmarks. Um, Joe later uh, became the treasurer of Atlanta Landmarks. He served on our board for many, many years. And in the 70s, you know, we were concerned once we saved the Fox and we had really no budget um, that we, the theater would be stripped. People were stealing things. They were stealing do- bronze doorknobs mm-hmm. and they were um, stealing lighting instruments and that sort of thing. So um, Joe and his German Shepherd acted as our security guard. He lived there. He lived there and the board agreed to allow him to convert some of the old mosque office space into an apartment and Joe lived there for almost 30 years. Lease free, I understand. That is correct. <laughs> wow. The Fox Theater is a nonprofit offering arts education programs, but there's also the Fox Theater Institute. Now, this is to assist small theaters across the state. What, what are you doing to help these little small town theaters? Well, yeah, that's a project that we're really, really proud of. Um, a couple of our board members, uh, Clara Axum and Walt Huntley, uh, were really urging um, management to come up with a new way that was more Fox-centric uh, to help other theaters and help other small downtowns um, around rural Georgia. So what we did was we formalized something that we'd been doing informally for years. We, we would of, often get called by other uh, interested community members that may have a small theater in their community and want to know how to operate it, mm-hmm. how to program it, how to restore it and preserve it. And we would give them advice and sometimes we'd assist them. So what we decided to do was formalize that. We uh, began Georgia Presenters, uh, which is a, a group that we help bring entertainment to these small theaters that's unlike the entertainment that we have at the Fox. Um, and we also sponsor many of those shows and underwrite them. We also provide uh, grants for theaters. Some of them are emergency grants, so it might be a grant to keep a theater from, uh, you know, repair a hole in the roof, um, or it might be a matching grant to uh, renew their facade. Well, what, what, is the, what is the motivation of working with small theaters? You know, what does this do to the whole, I guess, constellation of theaters in the state? Our board felt that it, it's our turn. Um, you know, Atlanta and the state of Georgia has been very, very good to us. Um, and we saw what how the Fox Theater transformed a, a section of Midtown, some of the most, uh, you know, difficult area to develop uh, in Midtown in the 70s that was full of crime and problems 
transform thanks to the Fox and all of its many, many patrons. And we felt that we could help other communities uh, by focusing on their theaters and transforming them. Alan, I know you've been there for 13 years. Is there a moment for you that just something you were seeing, something you were doing just captured the magic of the Fox for you? Oh, boy. Um, you know, I think it repeats itself. Um, sometimes, you know, we in the business get a little jaded, you know, because we're working retail hours and we're working office hours and you're there seven days a week sometimes. And um, it, I think I see it in the children's eyes, you know, when they come in and they stop cold when they come through the lobby and they can't believe their eyes and what they see. And they've never been in a place like this. And then they come into the theater and they look up at the stars in the sky um, and and then they're, they may be transfixed on the movie screen and they're watching Frozen uh, or it might be Peppa Pig or Paw Patrol. And, and I know that those children will always have a wonderful memory of the fox and they'll be the ones that will protect us and save us in the future. And we hope that they bring their children to our theater. Alan Vela, thank you so much and congratulations again. Thank you. Alan Vela is CEO and president of the Fox Theater, celebrating its 90th birthday this Wednesday, otherwise known as Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to head into the break with more of Hector Oliveira on the Mighty Mo organ playing Old Man River. Coming up, some tips for the perfect holiday playlist. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The season of holiday cheer and giving can be especially difficult for people going through loss, illness, or other challenges that come with being human. Atlanta-based poet, author, and playwright John Good is a close observer of how people make their way through the world. You may have seen him on HBO's Deaf Poetry Jam or CNN's Black in America series. He's also host of the Moth Story Slam in Atlanta. His book, Conduit, is a collection of stories, poems, and essays, including this one, Mastectomy, about a woman putting her diagnosis into perspective with grace and wisdom. Here's John Good reading Mastectomy. My name is John Good. And I am a writer of all things, poems, commercials, stage plays, ransom notes, all of it. Uh, the title of this poem is Mastectomy. And she was the definition of beauty. She was tall. She was completely bald. She was fresh out of recovery from her mastectomy. And being a breast amputee made her no less of a woman to me. I mean, those lumps of flesh across her chest made breasts. But breasts have never made a woman. And breasts never made she. And she, she held her head high. With a sense of peace in her eyes that cannot be denied and cannot be described or explained if I tried. Sustained by her sense of faith and her sense of pride. As she began to walk, you could sense it in her stride. That she stuck her chest out. And dared your eyes not to notice that the disappearing act was a fact and not some hocus-pocus. 
That's how I came to hear what she said to a man who came near to offer his condolences. She said, I want you to understand, and please know this, yes, I have second-guessed God and at times asked why. And yes, alone in the dark I oft times cry, but when my eyes are blessed to greet a new day, I understand I have to live at least two days today. And I understand in some way this is all in God's plan, so I've laid my burdens down and taken up God's hand. Because when the chemo goes long, and I'm not so sure that I can go on, God gives me a shoulder I can lean and rely on, and, and when I don't want any more insure, and I'm not so sure that I can endure any more, and I fall to the floor, not wanting to die, but not truly understanding what I'm living for, not understanding who I am, not understanding what am I to do. That's when God takes me in his arms and he carries me through. And yes, people love comparing me to the strong and the brave from Ali to MLK, but what I do is not brave. Because I, just like they, do what I have to do. Step in my doctor's shows and you'll see neither my shoes nor my soul have walked an easy road. But I remember being told, it's not the path you choose, it's the path that chose you. The same quandary faced Luke, Mark, John, and Matthew. So I laugh at those who view this as a tragedy. It seems sad, you see, but I used to live the life of sad, you see. So don't be sad for me. This had to be. Sometimes the buildings destroyed in catastrophes were simply blocking some things you had to see. And right now, let me clear up some of the fallacies associated with my malady, though the chemo leaves me weak. My soul is so complete that even when I cannot speak, you can see, feel, and hear me through my smile. And when this earthly host is gone and my ghost is carried home, I'll live on through a poem and be reborn as a child, floating down the Nile. Though I may have cancer, cancer will never have me. Bought with one breast, I am more and no less than any woman you will ever see. I am yesterday. I am tomorrow. I am now and forever me. I never ask you to pity or revel me. Never ask for your pardon or revelry. My mind is more concerned with the current turns taken in society. You know, just the other week, I saw The Passion of Christ on a movie screen. I saw his pain depicted in some very moving scenes, but if I can't find the passion of Christ in everyday human beings, then 300 mil in ticket sales. What does it all mean? Understand that these infants, these seeds that we've sown will grow into little visions of we. My trials and tribulations have shown it so much bigger than me. I'm trying to see these acorns grow into bigger and better trees, and I would give the other breast if I thought that would help you to see and believe. And on that note, she turned to me, she gave a smile, she took her leave, and she was, oh, so beautiful. So that poem was inspired by um, two people. The first is my great-grandmother, Rosie Starkey. She, at the age of 60, went to see uh, the doctor, and the doctor informed her that she had breast cancer. And my, my great-grandmother was a very uh, spiritual woman. She believed very much so in, like, the power of the mind. So she came home, and they asked her, they said, uh, Granny, did you go to the doctor today? She said, I did. 
And they said, well, what did, what, did, what did the doctor say? And she said, don't you know that man tried to give me cancer? And she kept on living her life and lived to be 100 years old. So it's partly inspired by her and her strength and also uh, inspired by a woman I met on a martyr train. She had had a mastectomy. She'd had um, one of her breasts removed. And she was so upbeat and so happy and so full of joy on that train. And I was on my way to work at the time. And I was rumbling and grumbling and complaining. And I was thinking to myself, who am I to complain when this woman who's, you know, fighting for her life has found a smile and found so much joy? So that poem was actually the product of um, those two interactions. So my advice for folks during this holiday season, um, especially with that poem, it's a poem about hope. It's a poem about triumph. Um, it's a poem about about overcoming in some of the you know harshest and, and hardest of times. And I think that during this Christmas season, the season is a is very much so one about giving, um, you know, uh, one about joy. And I think that that poem embodies a lot of that. Is that in the toughest of circumstances, you can still come out of it with a smile, with triumph, you know, with thanksgiving. That's John Good, Atlanta-based poet, author, and playwright. He read Mastectomy from his collection of poems and short stories called Conduit. You can catch John hosting events at the Moth Story Slam in Atlanta every month. Details are at our website, gpbnews.org. Jaleesa Ledbetter is an Atlanta-based DJ and member of Work Crew, a collective of artists, producers, and DJs in the city. Under the name DJ Hourglass, she's open for artists like Tyler the Creator and Lil Yachty and played festivals like Afropunk and A3C. Here are DJ Hourglass's picks for creating the best holiday playlist. It was great. She like would grab the mic sometimes and be like, you're now rocking the Hourglass. She's killing it. And I was like, I'm killing it. Janelle says I'm killing it. Hi, my name is Hourglass. I'm a DJ with Work Crew. One time at a holiday party, I DJed at Janelle Monet's house for her artists and for her friends and family, and it was nuts. I've done some work with some uh, artists in her Wonderland team, like St. Beauty, and I think they recommended me uh, to spend the holiday party that she had at her, her compound she called Wonderland every year. Um, it's like a tradition there. And I, I got there to set up with my speakers and my bag and my friend was with me and I was just trying to, you know, make sure I tiptoe this is someone's home. And so I kept it professional, but inside I was like screaming um, and she was cooking and she was just like, hi, she had like a Christmas onesie on and it was amazing. <laughs> she was super sweet. Um, and I ended up DJing. It was like her office, like right when you walk in. And I think I DJed for eight hours straight. It was a really long marathon type gig, but it was worth it. Like, it was great. She like would grab the mic sometimes and be like, you're now rocking the hourglass. She's killing it. And I was like, I'm killing it. Janelle Monae says I'm killing it. 
So for holiday parties, they're a little tricky because I'm squeezing in Christmas music, but I want to make sure it's not like super cheesy when I go from maybe a current top 40 hit to um, Silent Night. It has to be upbeat. Um, I And I also play a lot of remixes and edits of songs. I like to play music that's familiar, but do it in a different way um, so that it gives people a new experience. Okay, so you have to have Mariah Carey, All I Want for Christmas is You, classic. What else? I would say, like, Jackson 5, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, always fun. TLC, Sleigh Ride, is a really fun song. Um, and a lot of people don't know that Outkast Players Ball is actually a Christmas song. Their first single is a Christmas song. It was on a compilation album for the, from uh, their record company, LaFace. And sprinkled in the verses, they talk about chimneys and being cold and it's winter, but they're not in the spirit. But yeah, so I think they, they might have changed the version to because it became such a hit record. They changed the lyrics and like made it for like any time of the year. But that's like one of my favorites. I'm like no matter what the season, forever chill with Smith. I sit my fifth. I chill with Wes and got my reason. So tell me what did you expect? You thought I'd break my neck to help y'all deck the hawk. Oh no, I got other means of celebrating. I'm getting blizzard at Hotel. I got the hoochie waking. I made it through another year. Uh, for me, this Christmas has to be played, whether it's the original, like the Donny Hathaway version or a remake. Um, Temptations, Silent Night. James Brown has some good stuff. But if you really want to get people to dance, Big Frida has a Christmas album. It means it's time for big extravagant gifts. The type you find in the driveway. Drive the driveway. Driveway. New Orleans bounce Christmas music is perfect. <laughs> That'll do it. You'll be like the hottest DJ of like your apartment complex. <laughs> Jingle Bell Rock is my favorite. Um, and I think, is it Rudy? Is a big booty reindeer, I believe is the song. Rudy the big booty reindeer had a very large behind. And if you saw it go, it would really blow your mind. All of the other reindeers trying to make it feel ashamed. They would look down on Rudy. Jaleesa Ledbetter there, also known as DJ Hourglass. Her next event will take place at The Groove in Atlanta on New Year's Eve. You can find details on that and check out more of her holiday party picks at gpbnews.org. And let us know what's on your holiday playlist. We're on Twitter at OST Talk or on our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. Rudy only wanted a good time. Rudy only wanted 
If you Google the number for Santa Claus, a Southern California number pops up. But when children in Macon started dialing it from their local area code, they connected to one unsuspecting man. My name is Scott Chalkley. I grew up in Macon, Georgia. About eight years ago, I started getting wrong numbers from kids in my hometown. And uh, I'd pick up and not know what was happening. Little by little, I pieced together that people were trying to call Santa Claus. Scott lives in Raleigh, North Carolina now, but he still has his 478 cell phone number. He called in to On Second Thought to share how he's become Santa to about a thousand misdialing middle Georgia kids for nearly a decade, and what he's doing to give back to that community this year. Hey Santa, I'm sorry that I didn't believe you, but I do. My impression? Uh, ho, ho, ho! Merry Christmas! Thank you for calling the North Pole! Ho, ho! Hello? Hello? I could identify the kids calling by a wrong number from my home area code. Yeah, can I speak to Santa? So I'd pick up and put it on speaker and I'd start kind of a parlor game of trying to be Santa and talking to the kids and hearing what they wanted for Christmas. Santa, what I want for Christmas is a new scooter. I would like a JoJo Siwa merch. I've probably gotten over over a thousand voicemails. Uh, Not all of them are audible or intelligible, but... We put the best of them up on our website. Hello, Santa. I just want to know if I've been a good boy today. And I just wanted to ask if you are real. Bye. This year we came up with an idea to put our favorite voicemails up on a website uh, for a good cause and use it as a uh, donation site for the Merry Christmas Project in Macon, which helps provide kids in need with food and gifts and Christmas trees. Oh, hello, Santa Claus. I love you. I just want me a wish. I want three wishes. Thank you. The kids in my hometown have made Christmas special for me for a long time, so I wanted to make Christmas special for them. And uh, this charity seemed like the best way to do it, giving back to a charity that helps the kids of middle Georgia in a broader sense seemed like the way to do it. That is Scott Chalkley on taking on the role of Santa for Macon's children. You can listen to more of those voicemails and donate to the Merry Christmas Project on Scott's website for a good clause.org. That's clause C-L-A-U-S. Coming up, Laurel Snyder kicks off our series of our most popular conversations with authors this year. Her latest middle grade novel, My Jasper June, explores the healing powers of friendship between two teenagers. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. We are revisiting some of our favorite book interviews of the year. Laurel Snyder is author of several picture books for kids and novels for middle grade readers. Publishers Weekly named her newest, My Jasper June, one of its best books of 2019. New York Times chose it as one of the 25 best children's books of the year. The book begins a few weeks into summer. 13-year-old Leah is bored. A family tragedy the year before has her adrift from her classmates. She watches their vacation pictures on Instagram. She sleeps in. She watches movies and wanders her Ormwood Park neighborhood in the sweltering Atlanta heat. One afternoon, she cuts through a shady, overgrown lot and meets Jasper. With a halo of red hair, Jasper appears a little wild, a little mysterious, and, as Leah soon discovers, 
She's homeless. My Jasper June follows Jasper and Leah as they embark on a summer of urban adventures and navigate the messy path between childhood fantasy and very grown-up realities. Laurel Snyder joined me in the studio when the book first came out. Laurel, welcome. Thank you so much. So the book begins on the last day of school. Leah's feeling uh, like an outsider with her friends and reveals she's tired of trying to be okay for someone else. What has shifted for her? I don't want to get into it too deeply, but the family has gone through a pretty serious tragedy. And as sometimes happens and and has sometimes happened in my own life, um, when things are hard, everybody just kind of shuts down. And so the household has just sort of shut down around her. And she has found it really difficult to talk to people and to communicate with the world and has kind of gone into an isolation mode. And and she's not the only one. Her parents seem to be also in this kind of bubble shut down. Yeah, she describes them as ghosts. And I think that happens, right? Like adults model for children how to handle things. And so if adults don't model communication, it's really easy for kids to stop communicating too. There's a scene, right, very early in the book when they're all having dinner together at the beginning of the summer. I'd love you to read it for us, but first, can you set up the sort of dynamic of what's going on? Sure. So they've all just sort of stopped talking to each other. Dad spends a lot of time in his phone. Mom spends a lot of time kind of fussing and worrying, but not getting very much done. And they've sat down to dinner and it's the last day of school, and the parents have suddenly realized that they didn't bother to set up anything for Leah for the summer. And so they're sort of having the conversation about what to do about that. Yes, well, said Mom. In any case, it slipped my mind. I wonder what's still open. What what kind of thing were you thinking about? I can make some calls tomorrow from work. Dad shrugged. I don't know. Don't they do something over at the zoo with animals? I see lots of kids there whenever I drive past. It looks like a summer camp sort of thing. Or maybe she could learn coding. Hmm. Now mom was chewing her thumbnail. I just sat, waiting, watching them, in silence. Sometimes parents are like wild animals. If you don't make any loud noises or sudden movements, they'll forget you're there and leave you be. I was pretty sure that dad's something at the zoo was a day camp for little kids, like a petting zoo with snack and nap time. And I did not want to spend the summer hunched over a computer learning to code lame video games with a bunch of grubby 10-year-old boys. But I also didn't think I was going to help my case any by arguing with my parents, so I kept my mouth shut. Now Mom had her phone out and was scrolling through it quickly. I wondered what exactly she'd Googled. Aimless 13-year-old activities, last-minute summer camp ideas, moms who screw up and forget about vacation. (laughs) There's a way that you get into the brain of a 13-year-old sort of rolling her eyes with her parents at dinner. How do you do that? Well, I live with a 12-year-old and a 13-year-old currently, so I'm sort of deep in middle school right now at home. And it's such a funny age where one minute they're hugging you and the next minute they're slamming the door, you know. Um, I've been thinking and watching and, and trying to figure that out. But also those were really, really hard years for me as a kid. I think they were I think they are for most of us, and you try not to revisit them most of the time. But when you're writing for this age, you you do. You spend a lot of time kind of hanging out in your old journals and listening to music that you listened to when you were a kid and, and, and really trying to kind of tap that. She is in that space. And she remembers life before her smartphone when she loved fantasy novels and right. books and, and the sense of magic. But suddenly everything gets very real. And it gets real in the form of Jasper, this this girl that she meets, 
a girl who has to take two buses to shop for food at the Dollar Tree, mm-hmm. um, a place that Leah had never set right. foot in, by the way, washes her clothes in the stream. She's homeless. What did have you learned about how teenagers become homeless in, in preparing for this book? So this book came out of several experiences of my own when I was a kid. I was never... I never lived on my own in that way when I was a teenager, but I had several friends who did uh, when I was in high school. And I aged it down just a little bit. If I were writing a young adult novel, if I were writing for a slightly older age range, the experiences that I would have written about would have been different. But I I had friends who were in different ways, either emancipated legally or just living on their own in sort of an informal situation. In some cases, parents had moved out and in with a new partner, sort of different things like that. And I remember being about 13 and kind of experiencing this for the first time, walking in the door of a house and realizing there weren't grownups living there anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I think we have a tendency to, in children's literature sometimes, to other those kinds of experiences and, and to sort of write them as Great trauma and to forget that the same kids that are having those experiences are also watching TV or eating a hamburger. You know, that's their life, at least for those moments when they're living that way. And and so I wanted to write something that caught both sides of that. Yeah, and she is. She's a regular kid. She wants to watch Harry Potter movies, but she's also created a little home for herself in this kind of overgrown lot we did have sensitivity readers for this book. That yeah. that felt important that somebody lay eyes on this who had had this experience um, in a really true way. That but was these, interesting. these are huge issues. I mean, you've written about certainly emotional and social lives of middle grade readers um, before um, Bigger Than Breadbox about divorce, mm-hmm. for example. But, but this is homelessness, addiction, uh, domestic abuse. How do you approach for young readers? You said you have sensitivity readers, so people who look it over. But how do you... I don't know, deliver that. I think that we really do kids a disservice. I'm a big believer that we need all the books. I'm a big believer that children should be able to choose the books they want to read, and they should sort of know how to choose the books they want to read so that they know when to set something aside. I think sometimes we protect them a little too much as readers, and then they don't know, they don't learn to develop that ability to censor for themselves. But I'm a big believer that kids live in the world. And I think it's a really strange thing about children's literature that, you know, so my kids live in a house that has alcohol in it, but you never see alcohol in children's books. You know, that sort of like most kids I know are growing up in a house where their parents drink beer and wine, but it's like we leave it out of the sort of landscape of their world. And I've always thought it was a little bit odd. The fact that something isn't appropriate for the child doesn't mean that they're not growing up in a world surrounded by those things, whether it's swear words or booze or smoking or, I mean, whatever those things are, older siblings that shoplift or whatever, that we create a cutoff age and we say, like, at 14, children can now be exposed to beer, when in fact, at birth, most children are exposed to beer. And I'm using that as an example because it's less fraught. But the idea that we protect children in our literature from things that we can't protect them from in real life is really strange to me. And Leah begins to see how protected her little right. world is, right? And in her little progressive neighborhood, we know it's progressive because of the yard signs. <laughs> and they, they don't call their maid a maid. Right, right. Uh, or the woman that cleans their house a um, maid. So she would never really get to see how protected she was if it weren't for Jasper. Well, and that's the strange thing about, in particular, a neighborhood like Wormwood Park, which is where I live, there are 
people having all different kinds of experiences in terms of income levels, in terms of transportation, in terms of education, like those things are all happening side by side. And yet somehow a kid can go through their life without ever. It's like you go into this store, but not that store. Um, and, and that bothers me a lot. I, I think this was sort of an opportunity to kind of bring together parts of my neighborhood and places in my neighborhood. My guest is Laurel Snyder talking about her new book, My Jasper June. She's the author of several books for kids, and her previous middle grade novel, Orphan Island, was long listed for a National Book Award. Well, they have deprivations in very different ways. You know, Leah has never had the gas cut off in her house, but Jasper knows how to take care of herself, how to stand up for herself when the bus driver won't make change, for example. How, How do you remember that time of just wanting to be grown up? I've been thinking about this so much lately. I I loved being a kid, and then I wanted to be an adult. And I, I feel like in a lot of ways, this chapter of life that was sort of upper middle school and into high school was very difficult for me, and I kind of wanted to fly past it. And so I spent a lot of time – I wanted to play house. Like, I didn't, I didn't want to – be a teenager in that way. And and I, I think I spent a lot of per- time pretending I knew things I didn't know, watching older kids for signs of how to behave or what to say or what to order in a restaurant or how to wear my clothes that I, I just wanted to jump ahead. I, I didn't enjoy not knowing things. Hmm. And I, th- I think a really important thing about this book for me was that this isn't a book where one person saves somebody else. This is a book where two people discover that Real relationships and real communication and real sharing and openness and vulnerability, the relationship that you create with somebody when you do those things has the power to save both people. It's not somebody scooping someone else up. It's two people sort of holding hands. Yeah, Jasper doesn't want – she doesn't want to be a charity case. No, neither, and I think neither one of them wants to be saved, but they both need something. I'm not sure either person has the tools to save the other one but that together they are able to do things they could not do alone. They come to truly know each other. Yeah. You know, they fight and that's okay. But nobody wants to appear to be needy. Which So what comes with truly knowing for these two girls? This book, in many ways, is a tribute to my best friend. I have one best friend that I've had since I was... I also have family members who I love dearly, but I have one best friend that I have had since I was a very young girl um, who continues to be my best friend and has always been that person for me. And I think I was a very, I think I was an adult before I realized that not everybody found that person when they were a kid. And that what it means when you're a social pariah or your parents are splitting up or things are financially difficult at home or you move, I mean, any of the hard things you go through in life, what it means to go through them if you don't have that person that you know you can say anything to and that you can fight with, and that you can lose your temper with, um, and that you can be weak or frail with, or admit mistakes, is just a very different experience of life. I think it's also a book about parenting. Isn't it? Totally. Absolutely. <laughs> <Is that true? laughs> I mean, they're trying to make up for their deficiencies, real or imagined. Yeah. And there's a way that when you were talking about that true friendship, you know, ones that go it through thick and thin with you and ups and downs, it's modeling what you are as an adult and probably in some ways it's creating a foundation for you who you are as a couple. Absolutely. And I and I think that I think that a lot of kids do that. I mean, I think a lot of kids look at what they didn't have from their parents or what they didn't have from their family and they try to build that in their chosen family as they as they become adults, which these kids are 
trying to figure out how to do. It's also a book about changing Atlanta in many ways, yeah. right? You know, the mansions are taking over her neighborhood. The apartment buildings are going up everywhere. And this place, Red's Farm, it has wildness. It's teeming with kudzu. It's, it's the kind of place I would have played as mm-hmm. a kid. So you're raising two kids in urban Atlanta. Yep. How do they have that fantasy space, that play space? Do they, well, they have def- to... They definitely did as as kids. I mean, we moved into Ormwood Park at sort of just the perfect age for them to explore and catch snakes and, you know, salamanders and, and hop around on rocks and things like that. And we really, really loved and felt like Red's Farm was a magical space for us. Um, it's a complicated city. It's a complicated time. I mean, maybe it always is. Uh, I definitely feel like my children are very aware of changes in the neighborhood and their part in that. You know, we talk about that at home that <laughs> now that they're in middle school, like they throw the word gentrification around and and we have to sort of stop and say, we're part of that too. It would be incredibly dishonest not to own our space and all of that, that, you know, we moved to the city 15 years ago and, and were able to buy affordable houses and those houses aren't affordable anymore. And, and the, my kids need to understand that too. Um, but that's that's hard stuff. Yeah, that's how do they really take that tri- in? I don't know. They can talk to their therapists about it later. <laughs> I don't know. I, I yeah, I don't know. And that this is a, what even a lot of books, eighteen, twenty books. Have I got this that is, right? I, I I lose track. I well, lose track. Many picture books, yes. middle grade novels, somewhere around twenty books. Well, early in your career, you were publishing poetry, and mm-hmm. you still write poetry, as mm-hmm. far as I know. But there was this Half Life, a book about mm-hmm. interfaith homes that you edited, Daphne and Jim, a biography. Mm-hmm. So, what is it about writing for kids that stuck for you? I think I was always writing for kids. Not always everything. I I do book reviews for the New York Times. Those are not for children to read, but. I began writing poetry when I was eight years old. And when, when I was eight and I was writing poetry about fairies, um, I was writing poetry because I think it was briefer. And, you know, you're still learning to write. Um, and I loved poetry. I mean, I've always loved poetry. But I was writing poetry for children. And in my head, that's what I was doing. And then as I got older, I grew into writing adult poetry. And that was a fit in a lot of ways. But when I look back at the poems that I was making in graduate school or in the years just after graduate school, they all, I mean, my the, my master's thesis was called The Story of the Girl in the Flattened World. And it was about a girl and a bird and these like simple machines and gravity. Like it was very mythic. It was very fabulistic. I think I was sort of encoding what I really wanted to do, which was to write fables, which was to write stories. Um, and it just, it took a certain amount of comfort and frustration with the publishing world and things like that to kind of to kind of find my way to children's writing. But uh, it, there was something magical to me about childhood and fairy tale and myth and there was always something magic to me about art and text together. Um, so, I don't know. Maurice Sendak said that he didn't write for children. He wrote and and that was who read it. I don't I don't know if I believe that that's true for me. I I do feel like I'm writing for children. I spend a lot of time thinking about about what it is to be a child. Well, thank you for sharing this book with us. Thank you so much for having me.
That was Laurel Snyder, author of My Jasper June and many other books. We will have more of our most popular book interviews of 2019 throughout the winter break. Meanwhile, for tomorrow and the next day, GBB is featuring special holiday programming. So we're taking this opportunity to wish you well and to thank you. With all the distractions of our lives, I believe listening and attention is the kindest gift that we can give to each other. So on behalf of all of us, producer Priya Devan, producer LaRaven Taylor, Producer, Jake Troyer. Producer, Amelia Brock. Engineer, Jesse Neiswanger. Executive producer, Mary Lynn Ryan. And your Dean of Grammar, Don Smith. We are grateful for your notes of encouragement, your thoughtful feedback, your suggestion, and all of the time you spend listening to On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Happy holidays, all. See you on the other side.